Hey everyone, before we get started, I want to mention that the Ringer's Keeping It 1600 podcast will be live tomorrow, October 19th, both before and after the presidential debate. Starting at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific, they'll be simulcasting on Facebook Live, Periscope, and YouTube. So make sure to tune in to catch John Favreau, Tommy Vitor, and John Lovett break down all you need to know. Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow staff writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, sir. Hello. So I've got two things that I want to chat about real quick before we get to our guests. The first of which is, have you ever seen so much blood on a baseball field before? (laughs) There was a lot of dripping going on. I was watching highlights of it today, if you can call them highlights. I'd call them highlights. I find this fascinating. (laughs) There was a lot of flow. There were many droplets, and uh, the sites where I was trying to find images or GIFs or videos of this were posting, you know, warning graphic content messages, disclaimers above the actual images, which is not normally something you see with baseball highlights. Yeah. One of my favorites was uh, Jose Rivera from Lookout Landing at Bauer's request turned the drops of blood into crying Jordan faces. (laughs) The other thing was it was just so absurd. Like when John Gibbons finally came out of the dugout and said, you got to put a stop to this. Like it was, you know, Bauer was just gushing blood from his hand. And he's like holding it against his jersey, hoping that know, like, like, no one's going to see like, it. The... Nobody's going to notice. <laughs> right. like, yeah. and, like, you know, that that sounds stupid, but like, what else are you going to do? This is, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. I don't want to say that was karmic payback for his endorsement of The Phantom Menace as the best Star Wars movie, but he was definitely leaking midi chlorians all over the map. There was more blood in that first inning than there was in, <laughs> I'm going to say, all three prequel trilogy. Yeah, well, I mean, lightsaber they wounds cauterized are, the are cauterized. Exactly. So, yeah. All right. The second thing I wanted to, to bring up is Corey Kluber's about to make the fourth short rest start of these playoffs. And I wanted to see it. It just seems like teams are going to starting pitchers on three days of rest or, or fewer. Um, so I play index this and came up with four pitchers who have made more than one short rest start. This is the the 17th short rest start uh, since 2012 in the two wild card era. Clayton Kershaw has made just by my rough estimate about 16 of those. And, you know, your Dan Ventura's made a couple. Lance Lynn, oddly enough, has made a couple, but a lot of them have been off of relief appearances. So like Chris Young and Noah Syndergaard both started on short rest in last year's World Series, but technically after um, coming out of the bullpen. And a couple of those are like that, but so far all these have been true short rest starts three days after after a previous start. Even Kershaw's after coming in to, to close in Game 5 of the NLDS. That was still his, uh, his NLCS Game 2 start was still only three days after uh, his Game 4 start in the Division Series. So my question to you is, is this just... Kershaw being leaned on more than ever, or is this managers getting a little bit less finicky about putting, I mean, Kluber and and Kershaw are are exactly the guys that you'd pick to do this. I mean, they're both Cy Young quality starters who are 
in their late twenties. I forget if, if Kluber's already turned thirty or not, but they're established veterans, you know, who are used to two hundred thirty inning workloads. Is it just that both teams that have run out of starting pitching that they trust have one of those guys right now, or are we going to see managers get a little bit more creative? It does seem, at least anecdotally, that managers have become more aggressive in the last few postseasons in, in various ways. Maybe that's just recency bias or selective memory, but just with the way that bullpen management has been going, it definitely seems as, as, as if more and more managers are getting the memo that, hey, this is not the regular season and we shouldn't manage it as if it were the regular season, most notably Ned Yost, who had that memorable transition from the Ned Yost that everyone made fun of to the Ned Yost who was maybe even sort of a playoff pioneer and, and he really changed his style heading into the postseason. So it does seem as if managers are, are getting that and I wonder whether we will see any trickle down to the regular season and, and whether pitcher management for the first six months of the year will adapt it all to the postseason model just so that pitchers are more prepared for the way that they're being used in October. Yeah, I'll also note that the sample size for this is small enough that I was able to click through and investigate every single instance of this in like the uh -huh. 10 minutes before we podcasted. So yeah. we'll we'll see how much predictive value this has. Right. Well, in a way, it makes sense because starters are going less deep in games this postseason than they have in any previous postseason, even aside from drone-related injuries. And you might be more willing to start someone on short rest if you know they don't need to go that deep into the game. And you can also understand why managers are pulling guys before they go through the order the third time and incur that penalty, especially given the options they have available, such as Andrew Miller, who has now tweaked his slider to make it even more unhittable. He's now thrown 46 sliders in this ALCS, and he's gotten 22 swings. Of those 22 swings, 16 have been whiffs. Four have been fouls, so only two have led to a good outcome for the Blue Jays. Two singles. You can't even just take his slider, really, because he throws it for strikes a lot, too, so it's not as if it's always out of the zone. So I'm kind of wondering, just based on Theo Epstein's quote last November, he said, The only thing I know for sure is that whatever team wins the World Series, their particular style of play will be completely in vogue and trumpeted from the rooftops by the media all offseason and in front offices as the way to win. So I wonder if Cleveland does continue to roll here. If Cleveland wins the World Series, I wonder what the story of their World Series run will be. Will it be sign a bunch of relievers, get Andrew Miller at all costs, get enough relievers that you can have your starter be very bloody and leave after two outs and still manage to piece together a really good game? Or will it be kneecap all of your starting pitchers yeah. before the postseason starts? Part of me is like, you know, they, they are demonstrating the uh, the value of being able to to go like three and four deep and and have guys like not only Miller, but, but Cody Allen at the back yeah. end of that bullpen. Yeah. And we haven't even mentioned Dan Otero and Brian Shaw and Zach McAllister. But also you've been praising them for doing this for months. So, you know, everybody else is just going to look, you know, like they're copying you as as 29 <laughs> under other major league teams look like they're copying the Indians. And the, the second thing is, yeah, I mean, they this was not the plan. <laughs> like they, Yeah, they, right. They lost their their two, three, and four starters either during the playoffs or in the weeks before. So I don't know if, if this is something that, that anybody's going to want to replicate. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe they turn decent starters who might play up one or two times through the rotation into like multi-inning guys. I was, if the Orioles were making a run, I was going to suggest they go to a two man, like a two and a half man rotation 
and uh, have uh, Gossman and Tillman just turn over the lineup twice and then go straight through that, you know, to Brad Brock and Givens and, and Britton and, and those guys. Yeah. So maybe that's the the way of the right. future. And I think it would be optimal strategy, but also like nobody's ever going to get a hit if people do that. <laughs> I know. I know. This can only lead to less offense and more pitching changes in the future, which is not the greatest thing from a spectator perspective. We already saw the highest percentage of innings ever thrown by relievers during this regular season, and it's way up in October. So this might not be a bad offseason to be a free agent reliever. So Kenley Jansen and Aroldis Chapman and Mark Melanson might be in luck. We'll see. I, I wonder whether we'll, there will be a sort of Ewing theory narrative surrounding Cleveland's run this October. Just because they lost Carrasco, they lost Salazar. Now they seem to have lost power and they were written off by many people. Of course, we spoke about on this podcast, one of their beat writers just wrote them off in mid-September based on those injuries and... I would imagine that inside their clubhouse, that's probably been a, a rallying cry. Hey, no one believed in us. No, and you don't have single, to imagine. Every they, single they're, team. <laughs> they're very right. not mad. They think it's actually funny about this. Yeah, I mean, every single team thinks that no one ever believed in them. But with them, maybe it's more accurate than, than with most. So I'm sure that they are motivating themselves by thinking that. I don't know whether I would attribute any of their success to that. I think they're a, a good team that's being managed very well and has had a very good six games. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that they... You know, they're finding motivation. Nobody believed in this 94-win team that has probably right. the best pitcher in the American <laughs> League. Yes, the best starting pitcher perhaps in the American yeah, League and true. the best relief pitcher in the American League. All right. So if short rest starts and aggressive bullpen management and closers coming in in the middle innings and staying for more than one inning and not worrying about the save situation is the trend of this playoffs, then we're seeing sort of a, a throwback to days when that used to be more common, when pitchers did go on short rest more regularly. There weren't always five-man rotations, and there were firemen relievers who would come in whenever the most important moment was and stay in for the rest of the game or, or a good chunk of it. So we are curious about other tactics, other strategies of bygone baseball days that teams are maybe not making the most of, other other ideas that could be dredged up and we've seen them in the past and maybe it's time for a comeback so this is your best segue by the way and like the, what, <laughs> it's you. been three or four months since we've been doing this podcast i'm like <laughs> you started i was like wow that's a great segue thank you it's always good when i don't announce that the segue is happening which <laughs> i have done in the past so we are going to talk to two people who know much more about baseball history than we do one of them is the official historian of Major League Baseball and the author of many books, most recently Baseball in the Garden of Eden. He also writes regularly about baseball history at Our Game. That's ourgame.mlblogs.com. He is John Thorne. Hey, John. Howdy. And our second guest is a columnist for Vice Sports, formerly of Baseball Prospectus and SB Nation, and also the author of the Casey Stengel biography, Forging Genius, Stephen Goldman. Hey, Steve. Hi. So I want to ask you to both broadly, first, I, I guess, just whether you think teams are more or less creative than they used to be or, or more or less willing to do unorthodox things or, or maybe try a little bit of gamesmanship. Obviously, front offices have changed dramatically and preparation for games has changed dramatically. But are we more or less likely to see teams try out of the box things now? Or, or do you think things have gotten more rigid on the whole? I guess I'll start with John. Well, the one thing that has remained constant 
and drives innovation is the roster size. It's been mm-hmm. 25 since about 1910 with occasional variation. And with clubs carrying more pitchers, I believe in the National League Championship Series, each club is carrying 12 pitchers, which means only 13 men for the rest of the club. Mm-hmm. This drives managers to consider using relievers for six out saves while employing many left-right variations. And um, during the regular season, Joe Madden had Travis Wood and uh, Spencer Patton alternate between pitcher and left field a couple of times. Everybody thought this was a great innovation, but it has precedent. And I'll go on about that, letting Steve bump in here. Well, I... I think that uh, on one hand, that does drive some innovation, the roster size. And then uh, on the other hand, the sheer number of pitchers means that you can do fewer things with position players, whether it's defensive substitutions or pinch runners or pinch hitters. And I'll contradict myself slightly in that it forces managers like Joe Madden to use players like Ben Zobrist or Contreras in, in that guys who have to play both catcher in the outfield or infield in the outfield, whereas in the in the old days, it's not that those guys didn't exist. There always were your, you know, Tony Kubex, who who had a season as a center fielder slash shortstop, or your Billy Goodman's, who, you know, he won a batting title for the Red Sox in 1950 while playing all over the field, um, down to, say, Tony Phillips, who, who never seemed to play the, the same day, plays two days in a row in a lot of seasons. But if you had the larger roster, then you wouldn't. You would have more specialists at those given positions, fifth outfielders, which I think are kind of extinct now, or third catchers, which you know you can argue about whether that's a good idea or not. But the num- the real the relievers eating the roster, I think, does drive stuff down. What I do think is probably in a, in a subtler way driving innovation is the data revolution that we've had, and the sense of laser precise positioning. For example, uh, and I, I use that term pointedly since the Red Sox were using lasers to position guys earlier this year, but we've, we've, we haven't seen the lasers with the Cubs, but we've certainly seen the pinpoint positioning. And John, were you going to hop back in? Well, I'll hop back in um, to say that situational relief pitching, leaving sabermetrics to one side for the moment, situational relief pitching is a strategic plus, but a spectator minus. And the question of pace of the game as opposed to time of the game, and those two things are often related, but not always so, are things that concern the commissioner and concern many writers and many fans that every time you pull a pitcher after a third of an inning, the other night we had uh, five pitchers to record one out. This, to me, seems not entrancing baseball. Yeah. Well, one way to get around this, and I thought this was what you were hinting at uh, earlier, is something the the Mets did in 1986. And you said that Joe Madden did this with with Travis Wood earlier, but there was an extra inning game where they had uh, Roger McDowell, a right-handed pitcher, and Jesse Roscoe, a lefty, alternate between pitcher and the outfield. And this is one of those situations, and I've got a couple of these that I'm going to run by you guys, that as the specific kind of baseball nerd that I am, like it, it frustrates me that we don't see more weird stuff like this. So I guess I'd just ask, uh, what's keeping managers from doing this nowadays? What, you know, why isn't this, uh, why don't we see this hardly ever anymore? <laughs> Job security managers <laughs> manage by the book because they don't want to be attacked for innovation. 
this uh, this thing you mentioned with McDowell and Orozco really dates to Paul Richards with Harry Dorish and Billy Pierce back in 1951, and arguably dates back to 1891 when free substitution was first permitted. Because prior to that date, if you wanted to employ a relief pitcher at all, he had to come not from a bullpen or a bench, but from a position currently occupied. So the right fielder was often termed the change pitcher. So what we're doing in our mad pursuit of innovation by Madden and a couple of others is uh, looking back to uh, the earliest days of baseball. I'll throw in that Davey Johnson was doing that kind of thing in an era in which the, and this will see, I guess seems to be a recurrent theme for today, was doing it in an era in which the pitching staffs averaged more like 10 men and the distribution of innings was different. You didn't necessarily have the lefty one out specialist, uh, the spot guy. You might have um, at least 100 inning reliever in your bullpen. So had he got gotten to the end of the game, and I, I don't recall the exact specifics of that game, uh, another another sort of unique feature of that was that Davey used tandem closers with McDowell and Orozco, so he didn't have a definitive ninth inning guy. But had you you spent all the bullets in your gun, you know, you got to the bottom of the the pitching staff that much faster, and your options were reduced to uh, doing that kind of thing or the next day starter. But you know, one thing I want to add about that, just to agree with and echo what John says, is is it's. Uh, when they do that, it can be interesting, but all the pitching changes are not captivating baseball, and even even that are is represents pitching changes. And one thing, if I can be predictable and bring up Casey Stengel right here right now, <laughs> is, is as a guy who who uh, was a proponent of platooning, he also placed limits on it in two ways. One was he said that you couldn't have more than a ten man pitching staff because you needed the position players to do things. And, uh, of course, pitchers pitched more innings in his day, but he was not one of those who leaned very heavily on his starting pitchers. And the second part was he really, uh, although I don't, he didn't speak in terms of, of small sample sizes, he decried overreacting to the, to the platoon splits. And one thing that you'll hear uh, somebody like Joe Girardi quite often will say when he makes a move like that that's uh, slavishly devoted to the pl- platoon is he'll say, well, you know, he had th- – th- this hitter had great stats against the guy who was in there, so I took him out. And, you know, it'll be a two for three. Or He, he likes that rationale, and you'd think that as an engineer he'd be a smarter guy than that. And, and another – what Casey said about that was not so much about the, the small samples, but he said, what if you have – a lefty batter coming up and your lefty reliever is a curveball specialist, but your lefty hitter hits the curveball really, really well and doesn't hit the right-handers change up really, really well. So wouldn't you be better off ignoring the platoon and leaving the right-hander in? And that's a dimension that I feel like managers don't think of when it comes to platooning. I thought that Madden did a terrific job by leaving Miguel Montero in, uh, figuring that the matchup of Montero against the Dodgers pitcher was better than the option of Contreras, which would have been the result of his hand being forced. So do you think it's just that, you know, we mentioned Madden a few times now, you mentioned Casey Stengel, we mentioned Davey Johnson. Is it just that every generation has its one manager who is willing to push things and experiment and do things that don't look like what other managers do? And then sometimes they inspire 
copycats, but you know, maybe there are more or less of those managers at, at any particular time? I think it does take one man, and I hate to be arguing Carlisle's uh, great man theory, <laughs> right. but there are fashions in baseball just as there are on 7th Avenue. Hemlines go up, hemlines go down. So when Rudy Gernreich uh, invents the topless bathing suit, uh, he is an innovator, right? And uh, the fact that there wasn't a clamor of people following him in this particular innovation doesn't make innovation for its own sake a bad thing. I, I agree completely that you usually need somebody to set an example, and they can set a positive example or a negative example. And one thing that I was thinking about going into this conversation, it's not exactly the postseason, but it's very close to it. And again, this is coincidence. Forgive me. It's going to involve Casey again. But the I, I, I need to not apologize for knowing a lot about Casey, even though he just he comes to mind very naturally. He's a very pleasant presence to have in your mind. But the, the 1949 American League pennant race came down to the last uh, couple of games of the season, head to head Yankees and Red Sox. And when Casey's starter faltered in the penultimate game, he went to his fireman. Literally, that was his nickname, fireman Joe Page. And uh, he used him for 6.2 shutout innings. And what's it, not only is is um, is that an interesting thing to do in that even then when you had a uh, instead of a closer a pitcher who could appear at any point in the game he generally used him for about three innings not six. I mean this was equivalent to a start. But the other thing was that that the idea of having a relief face and and Page. Uh, in another era might have won uh, that there wasn't a Cy Young award yet, but he might have won it in 1947 and 1949. Those were his, his two big seasons. The next year, the Phillies had Jim Constante and, you know, suddenly everybody wanted to have a guy like Joe Page in the pen. Now, if you want to add an, 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 Joe Black, so, so it went on and on. Right. And then there, there's another uh, gambit that happens at that point, which is the Phillies, because they, they, they win the 1950 pennant and they go to win the Yankees. And, and they're short a couple of starters due to injuries. And because Kurt Simmons, who was their second best starting pitcher after Robin Roberts, was drafted and wasn't allowed to pitch. So then they turn around and start Jim Constante in game one of the World Series. And it didn't work. They got they got swept in four. But had it worked, maybe things would have gone in that direction. Actually, it worked as far as Constante was concerned, and my memory may be faulty, but I thought he either lost one to nothing or two to one. Yeah, I think he pitched. He actually pitched a fairly uh, a one to nothing game. Uh, I think he he uh, he lost to Vic Rashi, who's just you know one of the great postseason competitors. And do you think that you know those were days you bring up? You know, 1949. I wrote about that pennant race recently, where um, Joe McCarthy essentially cut his his starting rotation down to two guys down the stretch. And, you know, there was a lot more flexibility back then. And maybe flexibility is less of a good word than just not caring about shoulder injuries. But, you know, (laughs) managers don't have to uh, back then didn't, you know, have to worry about pitch counts and days of rest. And, you know, there's the old, old Hoss Radborn out there on Twitter snarking Clayton Kershaw for only being able to pitch four times in 10 days. So how much, you know, that weirdness is, is mitigated by, you know, is, is that entirely it? Just like, you know, we're guys are throwing harder. We know more about the human body now. Uh, you know, we're worried about avoiding injuries and, and that's why we don't see this anymore. Well, you know, we have, we have, we have staffs built of guys who throw 95 plus and, uh, 
You know, when you get a guy like um, the Cubs pitcher Hendricks, who who doesn't throw hard and is a pitcher of the of the old uh, sort, control and uh, location. The 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 modern emphasis on speed and intensity produces the pitch limits uh, from a self-defensive move, but also from from tracking when effectiveness wanes. So uh, Steve was right earlier that it's the intersection of plain old innovation between one's ears and sabermetrics. The game is being played at a higher level than ever before. And the fact that it is objectively better doesn't necessarily make for better entertainment. One thing I, I wanted to bring up in the, in this regard, and I'm not sure where one would characterize this, but it, it's one of the great classic baseball stories. John will will know it too, but when you talk about managerial gambits and the postseason, I, I think it has to come up, is in the 1929 World Series or going into it, Connie Mack, uh, who I don't think you would characterize as a, as a great strategic thinker. I mean, he he was obviously a very successful manager for, for a number of years, but uh, or a longer number of years than anybody in some ways. But he did two things. One was uh, as the it became clear that the A's were going to play the Cubs in the World Series that year, he took one of his fringier starting pitchers, a, a veteran who didn't have much arm left named Howard Emke, and sent him to personally scout the Cubs for a period of time. Then when it came to the World Series, he, looking at the Cubs roster, he made what seems to be, sort of be these decisions seem are sometimes explained separately, but they seem to be tandem. One, he looked at, at the Cubs and saw that they had guys like Rogers Hornsby and Hack Wilson and Kai Kai Kyler, and that they were pretty much, I think, eight of nine batters or or uh, or seven of the eight non-pitchers were, were right-handed. So he decided that the best pitcher in baseball, Lefty Grove, would not be of much use to him in this series and stuck him in the bullpen. So in this World Series, this would be tantamount to doing the same to, to Clayton Kershaw now at just looking at, at the opposing roster and, and benching him. And I, I think we would be complaining vociferously that that, that would be uh, overthinking things. Conversely, what he then did was have Howard Emke, who's the last person anybody thought would start, start game one. And uh, he pitched uh, a nine-inning uh, one-run game. The one run was unearned. He struck out 13, and the one thing that, that I did not realize about this until I checked, because you, you couldn't check it very easily this way until recently with the advent of baseball reference and such, was that that was the season high for strikeouts by a pitcher that season. There was one other pitcher who established did. a World Series record, which wasn't uh, surpassed until Carl Erskine. Right, exactly. So it was an incredibly successful move. It also, on a lot of levels, makes absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. But it's <laughs> it would be the second guessing would would be fascinating, and that's something I wanted to to bring up earlier when we were talking about examples and that positive examples lead to innovation. I think sometimes negative ones do, and and you began by talking about what's happening with, with the, the, the closers being called into the game earlier, um, something that Ben pointed out in a piece of his uh, back in the middle of the summer that Terry Francona was already doing with Andrew Miller. But I think negative examples are, are very strong too. And uh, in a piece that, that I'll have out later today, I was talking about this, that some, it seems like Buck Showalter did us all a great service by making the, the decision that he did to not use Zach Britton because now it seems like every other manager that remains in the postseason is hyper aware that that is not the hill he wants to die on. 
Yeah, Show Walter's decision provides cover for early usage of your best reliever. The Andrew Miller situation in Cleveland has been tremendous. So since we're already on the subject of 1920s World Series, John, do you want to take us five years earlier to the 1924 sure. World Series and Absolutely. tell us about the, the Curly Ogden maneuver? Yeah, the Curly Ogden <laughs> maneuver is, seems very modern and very clever. And Bucky Harris, who was the player manager of the Washington Senators, uh, we don't think of him as a great innovator either. Yet we're in Game 7 of 1924 between the Giants and the Senators, and Harris goes to owner Clark Griffith the night before with a big idea to get approval. And that's Bill Terry has been killing them. He's been batting 500, left-handed hitting, first baseman of the Giants, future Hall of Famer. They want to get away from him. So this is the plan Harris comes up with. Start a right-hander, forcing McGraw to put Terry at first base instead of the right-handed hitting George Kelly, with whom he was in a platoon. Hurley Ogden pitches to one batter, and then is replaced by George Mogridge, a lefty. Now, Terry is stuck with two hitless at-bats against Mogridge, who goes six-plus, and finally is pinch hit for. So when Walter Johnson wins the game in extra innings, one of the batters he doesn't have to worry about is Terry. It is a brilliant maneuver. And that's, we talk about second guessing, you know, Harris was, um, I think that was his, was that his first year managing the, the Senators? It was indeed. And he was only 27, and just to have the the courage to do something like that in Game Seven of the World Series, which is the last place you'd want to you'd want to innovate, just it's staggering in today's day and age. Well, it's good to be young, and Harris dined out on that decision for a long time. He, uh, I, I think, he had his last managerial stint with the Yankees in '47. Steve, am I yes. right? Or did yeah, he was Casey Stengel's direct predecessor? Yes, he was. So could we see that today? Is there a reason why that could or couldn't happen in the World Series later this month? You could. It would violate, I think, a kind of gentleman's agreement, which is why it's not done more often. I'm, I'm not saying it's it's a, a dirty tactic exactly, but uh, I mean, and it does force you to eat, you know, one roster spot to, uh, you know, you throw it away on 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 this sort of bait and bait and switch thing. But but uh, you know, if you do that kind of thing too often, then in some ways the whole idea of uh, announcing your lineup and rotation ahead of time becomes untenable. Mm -hmm. That it's impossible to repeat it. Who remembers it except the three, the three or four people on this call? <laughs> well, now the three or four people who listen to this podcast will remember it too. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it, it, and and I I want to point out, you know, Bucky Harris is is in the Hall of Fame, and I'm I'm never totally clear why he did he did win <laughs> two World Series. I mean, he managed thirty years, and he he won two World Series, uh, but but around that around those two World Series is a whole lot of of mediocrity. And in terms of being a postseason manager, he won the 1947 World Series, but he was really awful. And in the the famous Bill Bevins game, the one that, that uh, is an, a no-hitter with all the walks in the world for a while, and then the, the Dodgers win it late on uh, Cookie Lavagetto's uh, big hit, he made all kinds of strange decisions, like, you know, walking uh, – Pete Reeser, who was badly injured and, and uh, yeah. you know, could barely swing. And everybody seemed to understand that except Harris, who intentionally walked him to set up the big inning. So he, he made a lot, a lot of strange decisions. Uh, although I don't know that that decision, that decision didn't influence firing him as much as the fact that he couldn't figure out how to use 
Yogi Berra. But it's interesting that that on one hand, a, a guy can can do something as uh, as bold as as the 1924 World Series and then turn around and play a game as conservative as the one he did in the 1947 World Series. Excuse me, what they say about the stopped clock, right twice, twice a day. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've got these a couple of you know guys like Casey Stengel who were known as, as innovators and Bucky Harris, who sort of stumbled into a great decision every once in a while. Is there a manager in history that, you know, we should be talking about as one of these revolutionary figures, but like maybe just never had the talent or, or uh, whose big moment in the World Series just for whatever reason wasn't written about? I'd like to go back to Harry Wright. Harry Wright was the manager and captain, playing manager, playing captain for the Cincinnati Red Stockings of 1869 and on into the Boston Red Stockings of the National League. And I think if you look at how we got relief pitching in this game, you have to look to Harry. Harry himself functioned as a relief pitcher in his early years, and he made a, a uh, kind of sabermetric star out of a guy named Jack Manning, who um, appeared, I think, in 15 or 17 or 19 games in relief in, in 1876 and 1877, when it was impossible to do so by bringing in somebody from the bullpen. So Harry Wright had the idea of situational use of his roster. And I think this is this is brilliance. You know, I wholly defer to John on the 19th century because I'd be an idiot not to. And I I don't know if this is is necessarily a, a manager that we want to canonize. But I, I think much as as uh, Harris, who we were just talking about, had his his moment of insight. I think one move that's always impressed me and remains unfortunately uh obscure today is the one that mayo smith who managed the uh good detroit tigers teams of the late Ooh, 60s that's a good one steve <laughs> thank you john made in 1968 <laughs> they 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 had no shortstop or i mean they they did have human beings who attempted to play shortstop but the the main shortstop was ray oiler who um had, had a if, 135. If, yeah, 135. Um, if you like OPS plus, he had a 20. So <laughs> they had a, a really good defensive center fielder, not a great hitter, but Mickey Stanley he won four goal gloves. And Mickey Stanley liked to take infield before the games, uh, back when teams took infield. And Mayo Smith noticed that that he was pretty okay at it in in terms in in terms of picking up grounders. So he said to to him, and this is with six games left in the regular season, how about we make you the shortstop? And Stanley was terrified, but he agreed to do it. And this allowed them to get an extra bat in the lineup and win the 1968 World Series. And I think I won't divert us into extra baseball topics, but, you know, I recently uh, went to the, the JFK library in uh, in Boston and he wrote or had ghosted for him a book called Profiles and Courage about people uh, in politics who who risked bucking the conventional wisdom or, or the, the censure of the people around them to do what they thought was right. And I think that that applies very much to managers, too. We talked earlier about second guessing, and this would certainly be a move that if Mickey Stanley had had a Roger Peckinpah 1925 World Series mm -hmm. where he made all the errors in the world, that, that you would have been pilloried nationwide, but he was willing to take that risk to get that bat in the lineup. And Al Kaline got into the lineup as a result because he would have been on the bench. And so the uh, the offensive environment, you know, how much people walk, how many 
uh, home runs get hit. That sort of goes up and down over time. But now nowadays we're in an extreme high strikeout, uh, relatively low walk, high home run mode of baseball, I guess you'd call it. Does that limit the the opportunity for managerial shenanigans, just knowing that you know we are so much in a, a three-true outcome world? Well, the, the three-true outcome baseball, of course, is largely dull baseball. and I think so, too. What we need to do is we need to get more balls in play. And uh, we have defense better than ever. Uh, you know, I've watched baseball for about 65 years, and uh, I, I see plays made on a nightly basis that wouldn't be made in an entire season, even 40 years ago. So uh, opportunities for fielding are really exciting. Strikeouts or not, walks or not. Now, walks, strikeouts up and walks down reverses the historical trend. This is the first time we've seen those two things go in opposite directions. So something has to be done. And whether it's an adjustment to the strike zone or the batter's box or even the pitching count, you know, all of these things have been done before. I think uh, we're not far from be- becoming uh, a game that resembles that of 1952. And, uh, the level of playing skill out there today uh, warrants more opportunity to display itself. If we're heading for 1952, we're in trouble because there were there were pitchers walking 150 guys a year in in 1952 because uh, in part because I think pitchers were so contact averse that uh, that they preferred to do that rather than give in. And when you talk to players from that era, even they hated it. Uh, they they found it really tedious to go through to sit there on a hot afternoon and uh, be sweating on, on the field while they watch runner after runner walk down to first base. There's no reason to risk a stolen base if you are going to just trot around the bases a few pitches later. And that's that's the downside to a home run happy environment. They, you know, they, the the cliche is that the the best baseball is always the baseball when you were 12 years old, and and I was a little bit older than that during the period that I'm talking about, not a lot older, but but you know, it it's it seems to me maybe when I look back over the whole you know span of 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 major league baseball uh 20th say 20th century on, um, again leaving the the 1800s to uh, to John and his kingdom. It seems to me like maybe the 1980s had had some of the best mix of all of these elements that we've seen because you had some really good pitching. You had uh, players like Ricky Henderson and Eric Davis who could hit the ball out of the park but could also run like crazy. Uh, Andy Van Slyke's another one that comes to mind. Just a, a lot of versatility in the game. And I do miss that. I miss uh, I miss the way that that almost anything could happen uh and you had room too for for uh Whitey Herzog's teams which you know were throwbacks to the to the dead ball era in some ways as Bill James said Jack Clark and eight leadoff guys it, you know those 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 are things that that I, I think it would be great to get back to but we we also have to change not just the way the game is played but also the way that the the game is being scouted because those guys the the uh, you know and and these are are not two not great current players I'm going to mention but the Ben Revere's or the Billy Hamiltons 
those guys on the whole are not being scouted as heavily as they might have been at that time. I guess one problem that we haven't mentioned is that if you are very clever and you find and exploit some loophole in the rules, then they might close that loophole and you might not be able to do it anymore. Like the 1980 Earl, Earl Weaver Phantom DH idea, which he used mm -hmm. a, a bunch of times that year and then became illegal after that season. So you couldn't do it anymore. And, and there are probably many examples of that sort of thing happening. So over time, people have found those loopholes and, and made the most of them that they could. And, and then the loopholes closed. Well, I'll give you one from my magical kingdom of the 19th sure. century. This is surely <laughs> apocryphal, but it's a story so good it ought to be true. King Kelly, who um, either had been banged up from playing the prior day or had had too much to drink the night before. I vote for both. Yeah. Bench, <laughs> yes. Who's sitting on the bench when a foul pop-up was hit beyond the range of the first baseman or the catcher. He stood up and, as the captain of the club, said, Kelly now catching for Boston, caught the ball, and then inserted himself into the game because that's all it took in the early years of free substitution was to announce your entry into the game. You know, my absolute favorite that way is that there was a, a Dodgers-Cardinals um, game about 1916, and Miller Huggins was the manager of the Cardinals, uh, and a pitcher named Whitey Appleman was uh, on the mound, and he was a rookie. There was a runner on third base for the Cardinals, and I think the game, I, I could be saying, I, getting this detail wrong. I think the game was tied. And as the pitcher uh, got set to throw, Miller Huggins said, Hey, kid, let me see that ball. And Appleman, being, a, I guess, a polite guy, turned and tossed it towards Huggins, who simply stepped aside uh, out of the coaching box. The ball rolled all the way down the line. The runner scored, and the Cardinals won the game. They outlawed that one that year, too. <laughs> <laughs> and this sounds like another story uh, too good to be true and uh, probably has interchangeable characters. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up, any other tactics you want to shout out that you've been thinking about? Any other uh, clever maneuvers that we haven't mentioned? I have, oh, I have no ahead, clever sorry. maneuver to offer you here, but roster size, you know, which the owners, of course, do not want to increase, is the not only the great limiter on what you can do, but it is also the great source of inspiration for what you might do. I couldn't say it any better myself except adding an asterisk that if we somehow adjust the roster sizes to encourage uh, more position players, please let there be some kind of limit on the number of pitchers you can have active on any given day, or we will see 15-man and 16-man pitching staffs. And, and September baseball is such a drag with, with the extended rosters because now managers can do what Dusty Baker did the other day and just wear out a path to the mound. You know, Please, if they do that, let, let them consider that aspect of things. Agreed. Okay, so we will end there. You can find John on Twitter at Thorn underscore John, and you can find Stephen on Twitter at GoStephenGoldman, and that's probably the easiest way to follow all of their various writings. Guys, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks. It's been fun. Thank you for having me. All right, so that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. Michael, always good to talk to you. Likewise. And we will be back with another episode of The Ringer MLB Show later this week. 